<clears throat> well, hello there. This is Milena, and welcome to the first episode of Scientific Mavericks podcast, where it is my pleasure to introduce an incredibly talented team of thought leaders and innovators who are at the forefront of reinventing the way retail companies and channels make business decisions today. Hybris mantra is data has a better idea. And since its inception in 2015, Hyvery introduced world's first AI solutions leveraging retail genome, its proprietary algorithm networks and prescriptive analytics with the goal to automate business decisions and help retail companies increase their returns on retail space investment. Hyvery spun out of Data61 and is backed by the Coca-Cola company. Number 204 in the Deloitte 2018 Asia-Pacific Technology Fast 500 ranking, Hyvery has been repeatedly recognized as an Australian startup to watch for, and last year, Export Council of Australia awarded Hyvery for its contributions to the international trade and New South Wales economy. And today, it is my great pleasure to introduce one of Hyvery's founding members and the COO, Frankie Shimaki. Prior to Hyvery, Frankie has launched several early-stage startups such as Dating Companion, an app helping couples keep their romance alive, mockupmytattoo.com, an online service that helps people see how their tattoo would look like, and spaceable.com, a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace for physical space. Frankie was a founding member of Coca-Cola's first accelerator, a worldwide network of entrepreneurs building the next generation of billion-dollar businesses with the support of Coca-Cola and connected to its global assets and investment. Frankie specializes in helping startups and established companies apply an experimental mindset through learning an organization and leveraging tools like open innovation, lean startup, and design thinking. He goes by the belief that anyone who tries to improve a situation is a designer. So, without further ado, Frankie, welcome. Hey, thanks very much for having me. Well, thank you so much for taking the time for this podcast. I know you have a very busy schedule. So when I was doing my research, it came to my attention that growing up, you kicked around reinventing mousetraps and selling recycled rubber as erasers. How did that go for you? Yeah, that's actually good. I forgot about that. Um, the mousetrap came about for a science experiment, and I want to reinvent the mousetrap. As you can imagine, the current mousetraps in the market are really killing the, the mouse itself or the, or the rat. So I wanted a, another humane way of actually capturing mouses or mousey and letting it go in, in a different environment, you know, without harming it. So the mousetrap was uh, created by, you know, those old fans, held, held, handheld fans that had a battery. Mm -hmm. So basically I took that apart, created a, a, a wood box made of bolster um, and had foils inside of it. So when the mouse went into this box, balsa wood, I was just saying, balsa wood was the word I was trying to look for, and it had sort of this aluminium that touched each other. It created a circuit and it would roll up the little motor that was, um, you know, came from a, um, a fan. So it would roll it up and it, and it would lock the door. So the, the mouse trap box uh, had a hinge, and when you when the hinge connects to each other, it would lock and not open anymore. Uh, and so, essentially, if the you place a cheese at the back of the box in this little um, figure like a like a shoe box, but, but the mouse would enter in on the side. It would enter it. It would connect with uh, one of the aluminiums um, foil that would connect to another foil on the base of the box, 
And as it entered in there, it will trigger the circuit and the circuit will trigger the motor and the motor will um, close the door when the mouse is inside in the, in the right at the back of the, where the cheese would be, like the bait would be there. Um, so it was a really great way uh, to demonstrate there's other ways, you know, innovative ways to actually solve the problem of, of mouse traps. So that was the master. And the eraser story really was my mum used to work at a, I think it's called, I forgot its name, Fable Crystals. Fable Crystals was just a stationary manufacturer. And what they did is used to, uh, if there was sort of a slight manufacturing issue with it, they would just throw the whole rubber bands. Just think of it like a huge uh, Mars bar, you know, the size of a Mars bar that goes long and long. And if there was any imperfections, they would essentially throw that away in in the back of those dumpsters, you know, the industrial dumpsters. And then my brother and I would see these things just being dumped. And so we collected them and then chop them up, you know, think of the Mars bar, long one, chop them up into sizes and sell them around the neighbourhood near schools and high schools. And people would, um, you know, for 20 cents, you know, we would, even then, this is back in, you know, uh, 20 years now, people were actually buying these all rub, you know, um, imperfections um, in the local neighbourhood. And think about what we were doing there is that our target market was basically near school. So we're not going to go anywhere further than that. So people would, you know, uh, more likely to have kids there, more likely to have students there, uh, and more likely to have student needs. And, yeah, and sure enough, that worked. Um, we we <laughs> sold every time, you know, we, we picked up a mum. We noticed um, if there's any off uh, offcuts of rubber, we would collect them and, and repackage them, essentially cut them up and go around and selling them. Um, so, yeah, basically two stories, two different stories. One about, you know, improving the way, um, a current way of doing things. Another one is about recycling um, that's what people feel is waste into some value that, you know, if repackaged and redistributed in a new way could actually uh, generate value. Um, yeah, there there are two interesting stories. <laughs> yeah, those two stories were quite unconventional and very interesting. Thanks for sharing those, Frankie. I'm sure that will serve as quite an inspiration for our audience to take another look at current way of doing things and just experiment. I also know that you're an avid coffee drinker. Did you have your coffee this morning yet? Yes, I have my single origin from Brazil, actually. Uh, thanks for the guys that in the country of Brazil. So, I mean, I, I like coffee is that if you think about what coffee has done to industrial revolution, it actually triggered productivity. With caffeine as a stimulant, it actually, and, and you think about it, every time we make a decision in the morning or get up in the morning, it actually helps us, um, neurons fire up. And so, in a way, it actually helped industrialize our society. Coffee, you know, in a, in a you know, think of it like sort of freaky economics. I think coffee has a lot of merit, and has also some sort of um, functional health benefits as well, um, in, in creating, increasing your metabolism, but also increasing um, your your neurons. You're firing up, um, so it's, it's a stimulant. Um, and so when I got into coffee, really, when I was studying for, um, in Australia, we have the HSC, which is high school certificate that gets you into university. And I started getting into coffee because it actually gave me the alertness that I needed. These days, I think people, like a lot of young guys and girls would just have, you know, the energy drinks, but which is really, in most cases, are made of with artificial sort of stimulus. Uh, in most cases, there are natural ones, you know, 
as well, but in most cases. Nevertheless, um, yeah, I started getting into coffee and when I started into my employment years in my career, um, started to get really into it where I noticed that the, those baristas that would, you know, make coffee versus your instant coffees. And it turns out um, that, you know, there are two fundamental beans that make um, the coffee uh, population. There's, a, you know, Arabica bean, which is cotton, um, mostly the widely used in the baristas and, and your, you know, ground coffee. And then you have robustas often used in um, instant coffee. Now, Turns out that um, those two have interesting characteristics. One is uh, more superior than the other. The Arabica is much more superior because it's grown, it's larger, it's much more solid, and, and it's, it's much more refined taste as well. Um, but it has less caffeine in it, strangely, than the inferior, which is a robusta, uh, often used in instant coffees. The science around it, like you think, think about the process, in, in particularly in the robusta, being when you have your specialty coffee and your single origins and your cafes, it goes from the process of growing the, the species, which, by the way, originated from um, Ethiopia, and then the species was replicated. The, the Arabica was um, sort of um, taken out of Ethiopia, stolen out into other regions, in particular South America and, and, and Colombia. But nevertheless, um, the process is, you know, it's grown. It takes, you know, a, a few, few, few months. And then it's harvested by collecting by hand, really, that cherry beans. Then you have this process where you have to dry it. And there's different ways of drying the process. There's a dry process, a wash process, honey suckle process. There's, there's different processes. And then you actually have to collect them again. And depending on the way you collect them, so if there's different sizes, um, it would rate a different rating. Um, so, for example, if you, you hand pick them and they're all evenly selected in terms of sizes, that will make the next process when you're roasting an even roast. So, and um, and dep- depending on the y- uh, yield of the harvest um, in Parama, um, so certain South American countries there, very yield is very low, so there's a higher price. But the sizes are kind of consistent, meaning that if you if it's consistent bean size, when you're roasting, there's a consistent roast throughout the um, throughout the batch. Yeah, and so then, then the roasting process is there's a bit of an art to that as well. That's why you have roasters that are qualified to do that. Then there's when you get to the roasting is done, you ship it out. The barista would grind it, and there's also different techniques in grinding. It could be a, a very high grind, very fine or low um, grinding process. And then there's different types of um, you know a mechanism by which you pour. It could be you know your espresso style, your uh, arrow press, your French press. Um, uh, so you pour over. So the, um, if you think about it, it's a whole process, and in in that process, there there are different types of characteristics of the of the coffee changes. Just like uh, in a wine, there's a whole process, and no matter what time you open up the wine, it's going to be different. Even though it's bottled the same, in process, and a time in any time that you open it, it's going to be different to the time and next time that and the same bottle is open. It could be in the winter time or summertime the characteristics of the water uh, of the bottle is different similar in coffee so there's a the, there's a more of appreciation for coffee than once once i um just, just going to an instant um grind a coffee and then bang you put some hot water and you drink it so uh and i what i do also because of this i also have on my instagram that has basically long blacks um, um americano but just reviewing coffees um and i uh, and i yeah is when you do that you start to appreciate that there's actually different qualities that, that of, of taste qualities 
We have one coffee from Colombia, which often is good with milk-based, a coarse, very acidy. But then you have your Ethiopians and your Brazils. They're very fruity and flurry, um, very, very different. It feels like, it tastes like that you're tasting um, tea than coffee. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, coffee is um, a very big part in, in industrializing um, our society and, and increasing productivity. Um, but also it's kind of a lot of science around getting the right cup of um, joe as the American color. Well, where's your favorite place to get coffee in Sydney? Um, there's a few, but um, I would say there's in, basically where we're at in Surrey Hills in Sydney, there's Single Origin, uh, Single O, which um, there are their own roasteries. But there's also um, uh, Ruben Hill. They often have their own uh, Ruben Hill roastering. They actually roast their own beans. But they're also what's cool about them in a way that they feature different roasteries. So they could feature one from um, micro, um, micro uh, roasteries in, around the Sydney. Um, there's a few in Marrickville, which is maybe another uh, as a drive, probably a five-minute drive from here. Um, they have a lot of um, a lot of uh, a lot of roasteries. Uh, another one which is uh, very popular called Mecca. Uh, they're in Alexandra. Uh, again, another you know, fifteen minutes, uh, ten to fifteen minutes drive from Surrey Hills, Sydney. Um, and there is another one called uh, Coffee Alchemy, which is really good. Um, that's in Marrickville. So I'll, I'll say um, my favorite ones would be um, sort of Mecca, John Smith. These, these are local roasteries. Um, and more broadly, you have ones, more commercial ones, uh, your campus and, and your single O. Thanks for sharing all that. I'm sure our listeners will very much appreciate that advice. Prior to starting your journey of finding new ventures, you worked for over 16 years at AMP, limited financial services firm, and correct me if I'm wrong. So when you became a founding member of the Coca-Cola First Accelerator in 2013, how did you go from being a driving force and instigating change within an already established company to stepping into a new role of being a leader of a new initiative? What served as a catalyst of such change, if you would? Uh, yeah, it's a good question, uh, Million. Um, look, I think... Firstly, you need to understand what what innovation agenda that each company has. Companies like AMP who've been around for 150 years, uh, and similar to Coke, um, uh, have been around for. They're, they're, what they're looking for is. Um, let me actually step back a bit. There's in terms of innovation agenda. Back to that point, right? There's there's three fundamentals, and this is coming out work from McKinsey Consulting called the Three Horizons. There's the horizon one, two, and three. One is basically optimizing um, the business model today. So for for uh, um, AMP, it was all about um, the existing business model, which is selling insurance or, or investments through a, a distribution channel of financial planners. And how do you optimize that uh, and, and potentially create new products, new new features of product? But it's not. It's basically what often it's called in the first tier or first horizon innovation is is called um, incremental innovation. Next next um, horizon horizon two is looking at leveraging the business model. So it might be that instead of you going through uh, distribution channels of of financial planners, you would sell directly. So it's still still the same business model, still the same products in a way. 
but you're distributing in a new manner. So that's sort of your Horizon 2. So what Horizon 2 is essentially about um, leveraging the business model. It's modifying a little bit in a new direction, but it's actually the, it's leveraging in a way that it's it's a lot of the business model was known in, in terms of this cost of um, goods, in terms of marketing, most of it's known. Horizon 3, which is the next frontier, is, um, is the business model is unknown, meaning that you're looking at creating a new business model. So essentially it's not about, maybe it's not even about finances, maybe it's about related to finances, adjacency like health, which could be related to finances through insurances. And so those, those three, three um, horizons, Horizon 1, 2, and 3, you can actually allocate different budgets to it. 70% of, of, of budget, uh, 70%, it's 70, 20, 10 sort of philosophy. <laughs> Similar with Google, for example, you know, 20, 70% of, of its innovation happens around its core business, which is about search and advertising. The second element is about related to search, which is, it's not about, it, maybe it would be Google Maps or Google YouTube, which is again, search, but in the video, search in, in Maps. The last 10% is out there. It's maybe something like Google Car, Google Lens, which is like a really experimental. So what I'm saying is that, um, and I'll link this back to Coke and, um, and, you know, and A&P and the difference there, is that because of those different uh, innovation platforms or, or horizons, you need a different innovation philosophy or framework to solve problems. So in, in, in Coke and, and, sorry, in A&P, it was really about incremental innovation, uh, improving uh, Horizon 1 and 2. But what Coke was looking for was disruptive, sort of new business model that actually would probably even disrupt their own business model. Um, so um, that means that you would need a different framework. So in a framework with um, Coke, it was all about lean startup and lean startup techniques or methodology is really about business, mo- business model is unknown, but you have a systemic, systematic way to solve that by de-risking that model, and that's what you call lean, you know, lean, you know, lean startup and new canvases and trying to uh, test your assumptions before investing more time and energy. So the jump between Coke, um, uh, sorry, A and P and Coke was basically from really is around changing from a incremental innovation um, tools, which is you know I wasn't using crowdsourcing and using um, uh, brainstorming techniques around the pro- the challenges that are faced by the business. To one that is much more free and um, and allows you to experiment with different types of problem statements and different types of innovation frameworks. So when Coke was purposely in our in, in our world, basically, it was looking for that ten um, percent. That's what we were looking for. We were not looking for create a new beverage that's you know done by seven hundred thousand people in in the Coca Cola system. Um, and so they were looking for that ten percent, a new business model. So what we did. Um, was uh, um, came in and really say, okay, well, we need a framework that allows us to actually understand and learn quickly so we don't invest time and energy into it. Uh, and that was a, sort of the lean startup, the entrepreneurish element of it. In 2015, you co-founded Hivery, which was born following a big data hackathon. Back then, the team consisted of only five founding members. How would you describe the team back then and what was your strategy to get more people on board and recruit new talent? Well, like when we started out very similar to a lean startup, um, we started with five and everybody wore different hats, you know, from HR, marketing, from um, engineering to software engineering to data science. But as you start finding product market fit, 
meaning that that what you're developing um, is 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 addressing a market that is in need. Then you say, okay, well, I'm getting paid for this now, and so you get a commercial model. That commercial model allows you justification to actually start hiring people, and so that's that was the sort of the kickoff of the journey from five people to now over uh, thirty five um, people in 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 just under four years. So basically, the, the philosophy that we took was once we knew that we our products were commercial and we had a hit and we were getting paid for, how do we accelerate the growth of that product to market? And so we started recruiting people. So no longer our data scientists were just doing uh, software engineers, they were just doing data scientists. We recruited data science, um, software engineers to join. No longer was I doing HR stuff, I recruited a head of people and culture to, to manage that process. So, the, so really what it comes down to um, in, in a hybrid it's basically when you when you discover um, that um, something's working, then you start investing into it and growing the business. Um, and when I say growing, it's basically in, in, in recruiting people that are more specialized. The idea really ultimately is to get yourself out of the out of employment, because you know as an entrepreneur, it's really good at solving problems. But when you know it's solved, the best way to accelerate growth in most cases, most cases. Is to get senior, you know, people that are experienced to grow the business back to. So basically, what we did in Hybrid is found the ten percent, and now that ten percent transitions into the seventy percent becomes business as usual. And where where you look for is skill sets that are designed to to maximize the the business model uh, because the business model is known. We know what we're selling. We know the pricing structure. I mean, we've still got a long way, um, but the point is is that once once you get from the founding group. You transition to a growing sort of, you know, moving from your infant years to your teenage years to your adult years, and you get more seasoned people to run the business. And that's what we're doing now. We've hired, you know, head of people and culture. We've got a head of US, head of Japan, head of commercial. So we're starting to do that anyway. So, yeah. So four years later, since Hybrid's inception with a team of 35 people, as you just mentioned, and offices located across the globe in Australia, Japan, and US, as you just mentioned as well. What is your approach to managing the company, client relationships, products, and the team all four at once? Um, what would you say is your recipe to success with time and people management? Uh, I think uh, it's, a, it's a good question uh, uh, in terms of, you know, what's our recipe success and, and and managing and managing the company um, towards that success uh, look I think it comes down to the fundamentals is I would say first fundamental is um, solving problems worth solving um, and and the customers find value um, a lot of, so basically building amazing products um, that's fundamental and how do you do that is in order for you to build amazing products you need an amazing team so that's the second thing um, in terms of a secret recipe uh, for success, uh, and if you have if you have amazing products with amazing teams, then you you need to have amazing relationships to or distributions, and so so that's what our three fundamentals is you know continue to invest in designing great products and finding problems, working with our customers. Um, what I often call it is building empathy towards the data and and customer. Um, so building great products, building great teams along the way. So we try to maintain our culture and 
Melina, you know, Melina, I'm sure you feel that you were part of this team um, in the beginning. So you get a feel for the vibe that the that we, we try to nurture. Yeah. And then the final thing is um, relationships. So relationships or distribution channels or marketing, which is all, all part of that, is that what we the secret to our success initially anyway is around um, building um, or what I say is building a, 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 a brand name uh, in in the relationships that we had at Coke. So what we did, um, as, as this is about, you know, the third element, right? So the first element I was talking about is building great products, building great team, and then building great uh, relationships, is that we, when we, why, it's, why we, what's fundamental, what's important in, in any startup is distribution. So even if you've got the best product ever and you've got smart people, smart teams, if you can't connect to your market, you, you're going to fail. So that's fundamental. But what we did, and Jason and I were, you know, as, a, as we were ex-Coke, we leveraged our relationships in Coke to get buy-in. So our first experiment that we ran with Coca-Cola at Metal proved that what we had, this is algorithm, was far superior than the way humans would do, uh, which is vending analytics. Humans would stack vending machines. That triggered off a brand name in Highbury. And then we started selling it to other um, other bottlers in the Coca-Cola system, leveraging our relationship and also leveraging the fact that we're partly owned by Coke, so it's in your Coke's interest. So um, so that then, you know, connected to you, the U.S. Um, bottlers and we started working with new products in, in our category management space, with new products in our PE, promotional effectiveness, that all was driven by relationships. So it's part of our marketing, but, you know, this is why we heavily travel a lot because 80% of our revenue is overseas. But my point is, is that the, the success recipe for success comes down to really um, building amazing products, which we started off because the algorithm that we built was far superior than any way any human can ever do. Then we backed ourselves with smart people, you know, Minkes, Matt and Charles. And then you got Jason and I that, you know, the business side of things. And they're, they're all fundamental. People are fundamental to deliver that product and continue to deliver. And then the final, final aspect to success is distribution. Um, is, um, is that and distribution means you're marketing, your sales, and building their relationships and leveraging. What we did is leverage our relationships in the Coca-Cola system to, to, to really boost our, our presence. And, you know, now we have over 20 bottlers in the U.S., um, we have a flagship bottle in in um, in, um, in Australia, Coco Amatel. We're in you know we're in Japan with the uh, one of the most conservative companies in Japan, JRL. And then we also in in in, in the in Europe with um, with the largest vending operator um, um, with vending operator in in Europe. So you know, and it all came down to to three things. Like I said, great products. Great, amazing teams and distribution that um, we can leverage and, and sell mm-hmm. to. Highbury for sure had many successes over the past years, but would you say that there were some bumps along the road? And if so, what was the biggest challenge that you had to face? And what was your strategy to overcome it individually or as a team? The challenges that we face evolve over time. Um, and it, it, their challenges evolve um, as, as part of the life cycle of any company. You know, like when we're starting out, it was all about um, building the right product, building the right team, 
Then as we grew, it was about, oh, well, now we know the product's working. How do we scale this up? And, and then, and then, um, then as we grew and created new products, people were asking us other new products that we wouldn't said no to. But then, so how do we manage? You know, how do we manage be uh, manage a portfolio of products, and how do we balance that with being focused, um, which is important as any startup. So you know, I often say that we don't startups don't fail because they're of hunger, as in customers. They fail because of gluttony because they because they they um. They um, say yes to every uh, opportunity as opposed to being focused and really having a go. Um, and then as you grow, it's about culture. Um, now, as the company grows and moves from infant to teenagers to, to going towards our life, it's about how do you maintain culture, how do you maintain structure. And, in, in, and across throughout that journey, it's all about ensuring that you also have cash flow, which is you know fundamental in, in any business. So I would say the challenges evolve as the – as a company evolves. Mm-hmm. We were talking earlier about the 70-20-10 innovation strategy. So as you mentioned now, as the company evolves and the team grows, when you innovate and drive change, whether it's incremental or disruptive, how do you sort of move past the point of being stuck or unsure? Look, I don't think it's ever going to be getting out there. It's basically you need to learn what, what's happening, what's working well, what's not working well. So there's no in any incremental innovation anyway. It's, it's incremental, but the reason why it's incremental is that you're, um, you know, the business, most of the business model is known, so you're just testing little elements of the business model. could be a new, you know, new, you know in, in Coke's sense, it's like a, um, I don't know, um, a new new flavor on Coke. It's incremental. Yeah, it's not, it, the, the business model is known. You know, you know how to sell that Coke. You know how to distribute that Coke. You know the cost of the Coke, but it's a new flavor. So it's incremental in terms of actual or incremental revenue coming in. Similarly, at, in Hybrid, um, it's, it's like a lot of times this journey in innovation, regardless, in, it's in, 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 incremental, disruptive, or transformational, which is basically your, you know, 70, 2010, it's all about how, how effective you are learning through the process and adapting to that, um, to that change or that information comes in. This is often called operational uh, organizational learning. It's a whole you know, philosophy around this. But that's operational learning and is all about understanding, adapting to change, adapting and changing to the knowledge that you gain every time something happens. Or there's a, this, yeah. Um, and so we we done that well. So we're a small, nimble company, and we 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 learn about um, what our customers are saying about our products. We learn about our, you know, and and adapt that from anywhere from a pricing structure to our products development, but internally as well. We we adapt. If you know, you can't you can't operate um, a five person team similar to a thirty five or forty um, person company. You know, so structures and prices need to change. Uh, and so you need to adapt that. You need to learn what, what's most appropriate. Not only do you run Hybrid, but you're also often invited as a guest lecturer to run workshops on lean startup entrepreneurship, corporate innovation, business model validation, and in general, how organizations can leverage artificial intelligence and deploy it in existing operations. Although I'm sure the content varies based on the crowd and the topic, but what is the biggest takeaway you want your audience to remember from your lectures? 
Well, it's a tough question there, the <laughs> biggest takeaway, because each, each audience is different. Mm-hmm. But I think fundamentally it's back to the, um, the belief that I often talk about that anyone that's trying to improve a situation is a designer. And, and so, you know, the world has been created with people no smarter than you and I, Melina. Mm-hmm. So we can actually change that world for the better, that is. Uh, and so, you know, all these, all these lecturings or lean startups and all, it's all about what I believe anyway. It's about improving the status quo is, is you know, progressing us from a, a better species, human species, either we're going to, you know, species on Earth or Mars. Um, and so I would say that, you know, as a species of human, human species, I, I would say, is that we've done a lot uh, compared to, you know, the difference between us and, and our nearest species, which is the apes, is from a DNA perspective, is 4%. But in 4%, we've ruled over the world. We've, you know, created transportations, telecommunications, and now, we, you know, we're going to space, we're going to different planets. It's a 4% difference. Um, imagine if we, you know, were able to use more of our intellectual um, capacity. But innovation is all about tapping into that um tapping into that um that four percent um you know of, of, uh, and and seeing how we can solve new problems with new ways of doing things um so our biggest you know biggest takeaway i want my audience uh, to remember is that is that you know that um we're we're, we're given one opportunity to improve the world um, there are a lot of ways you can do that through Lean Startup or, you know, the, we talked about the, the Free Horizons. Is that, and there's a lot of problems to be solved. And so let's, let's, make, let's make those, um, those um, solutions worthwhile that are fundamental change the way we, the, the way we live. And, and, and AI is, is fundamental that it's a general purpose technology. It's going to change um, the way we live. So I, this is why I often, you know, talk about in our, in our, in, in, in our, my presentations about AI and how it's impacting uh, our lives, but how we can innovate with AI, just how we've innovated with internet. Um, you know, we've got a lot of multi-billion dollar companies that the whole premise is, that, you know, is built on the internet. Facebook wouldn't exist. Pinterest wouldn't exist. These social media companies wouldn't exist because of this general purpose technology, which is the internet. So AI is a general purpose technology. Um, so the message will be around that is that, you know, keep on innovating and, and solve a meaningful problem. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day, Frankie, today to join this podcast. It was so lovely to catch up with you again. And I'm sure our listeners will very much appreciate the look from within narrated through your words about one of the most promising and watched AI startups in Australia. Thanks, Melina. Till the next time.